This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. When they were just 13 and 11 years old, Chloe and Halle Bailey started posting videos of themselves singing on YouTube. Hey, what's up, you guys? I'm Chloe. And I'm Halle. And you all have requested so many songs, and we want to thank you for that. Yes. But the one you all have requested the most was Rolling in the Deep by Adele. There's a fire signing in my heart, reaching Chloe and Halle, that's how they build themselves, quickly built a following. Their cover versions of other artists' songs often went viral. A cover of Beyonce's Pretty Hurts caught the attention of Beyonce herself. But Chloe and Halle were thinking a lot bigger than just going viral for a hot second. They wanted to build a career, and they did so, owing in part to Chloe's producing of their songs, something that's still pretty unusual for very young female artists. Beyonce signed them to her management company and brought Chloe and Halle on tour as her opening act. Now after two albums and five Grammy nominations, the sisters are for the very first time working on separate projects. Halle is starring as Ariel in an upcoming remake of The Little Mermaid, and Chloe is releasing a new solo album. It's called In Pieces, and it comes out later this month. Chloe Bailey spoke with our contributing writer, Lauren Michelle Jackson, at the New Yorker Festival in October. What is that like going from duo to solo? When I was creating with Hallie, I always had her by my side and I could go, Hallie, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? If I made a beat, I'll be like, do you like this? What about this lyric? And she'll be like, yeah, yeah, it's great. And she'd kind of give me that extra boost of confidence that I needed. And now, you know, creating is the same. I never stopped creating because with our Chloe and Hallie albums, I engineered and produced us and all of that. So doing it on... (laughs) 
So doing it on my own, the confidence wasn't there because I was like, I don't have Hallie by my side to tell me if it's good or not. So that has been interesting because that's where you really have to step into believing in yourself and believing that your art is good enough. So when I took up producing, I think at 12 years old, you know, Sis and I, we were singing all around Atlanta and there would be no producers who would take us seriously. And like, what kind of songs and tracks are you going to make for 10 and 12 year olds? You know, so it's not <laughs> that hard to believe. And I was in the house and had my computer and I started looking up on YouTube how to produce and all of that. And it just kind of happened and flourished on its own. And I love building. I think that's why I love puzzles and Legos so much. That's really all producing is and how I layer harmonies in my head. That's how I hear the full production. So I think that's why vocal producing comes so easily to me because that's how I hear all the different instrumental parts. I'm wondering if there are certain terms that sort of resonate with you when it comes to describing the genre of your work? Yeah, if there's one word, I'd have to put it into, I'd say unpredictable. I'm inspired by so many different random things, and I like to put that into my music. So when it comes to genres or labels or boxes, I just create how I'm feeling that day. You know, if my heart feels happy and excited and I really want to dance, you'll get a pop record. You know, if I'm feeling really moody and grungy and sad, you know, you sometimes it'll be R&B, sometimes it'll be alternative. You never know what you're going to get, and I don't want people to ever be able to know what to expect from me. And I think that's why I'm so excited for whenever God wants the album to come out, when it comes out, <laughs> so that you all can hear all of the different places I go to and the different vibes and the feel and the emotion. And I just kind of let my heart take the lead in what it's supposed to sound and feel like. Um, I really just kind of want to know the practice of the cover. What is like the selection process? You know, like not everyone gets a cover from Chloe Bailey, you know, like... <laughs> It's definitely based on how I'm feeling. I'll, I've sent so many covers like, what about this one? What about this one? In group chats. And, you know, I think it comes down to, can I properly execute? Because I'm not trying to be dragged online as well. <laughs> and there's been so many times I've redone covers. There's been so many that I haven't put out. There's been so many that I think will pop off and didn't. There's been so many where I didn't put that much thought into it and it got crazy like so viral feet on the ground and she's burning it down this girl is on fire this girl is on fire she's walking on fire i have a love hate relationship with social media because if we think about it Without social media, without YouTube, without covers, my sister and I would not be here. And when I was little, I'd always be like, I'm going to be a superstar. I don't know how, but I'm going to make it. So I'm still saying that to myself, but it's crazy that the beginning of the journey started through that. Before your songs had to pop off on TikTok, you know, it was YouTube and the radio and all that stuff. So no matter which generation we're in, there's always something that you want your music to like be like lit on, right? So I think when we program our minds to think about being number one and winning all these awards, when you're creating, it really suffocates you. 
and it stifles the process. Yes, you have to have hit songs and pop and singles or whatever. That's great, but you can't let it rule you. Right now, I'm just creating to be creating, and I have never felt more free when it has come to that. And that's when you get the magic. With Have Mercy, I'm going to be completely honest. I was pleasantly surprised how it popped off on TikTok because I did not make that song for TikTok. When I created the song, I was really emotional that day. And I had this beat that my friend Murda sent me for like two weeks and I was holding on to it because I really liked it. But I was like, I can't mess it up. I think something online was going about me and not the most positive space. And I was so sad about it. And Have Mercy was a response to everyone who had something negative to say about me expressing the freedom with my body. So good songs. And, you know, I didn't know it was going to be so pop or, you know, or so tongue in cheek. <laughs> I was saying a lot of things in those lyrics I would not say <laughs> in everyday life. And who knew that just speaking from the heart, you create that. So I just have to constantly speak from the heart. So now we have time for some Q&A. Um, let's see. This one's really cute. What advice do you have for siblings looking to produce together? Oh, okay. Listen to each other. And if you have a disagreement on something, try it both ways and then listen to it, and then take the vote then. There's been so many times Sis and I would butt heads on certain musical decisions on a song. Like, no, this way's better. No, we, this lyric's better. So we've learned to just try it both ways. Sometimes I'd be proven wrong. Sometimes she'd be proven wrong. And I think that's the best way to see if something works. So, so this one asks, how much of your time is spent on vocal preservation slash maintenance? The vocal cords, it's like a muscle. So any athlete, you have to condition your body. You have to train. If you don't stretch, you pull a muscle, things like that. And I'm constantly trying to learn. I love hearing singers who are doing riffs and runs I cannot do. Plastic on the Sofa by Beyonce. That cover, that cover, it challenged me vocally and I was grateful for it. It's like Thank you. It's like a it's like a fun puzzle and it's like once you get the riffs and runs right you're like yes. I say this a lot. It was at the opening of the African American Smithsonian Museum. And my sister and I were singing and Mary Mary comes right after us, the next song. And I'm sure you guys know, I, I'm very open about it. No matter whenever I perform, I get really, really nervous, like shakes and everything. But I hope it never goes away because one, it reminds me I'm alive. Two, it's like an adrenaline rush. And I think I kind of live for it. Like in the moment, even though I feel like I'm going to faint sometimes, I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, help me. I'm like, oh, wow, that was kind of exciting. It was a thrill. So it's like that, right? <laughs>
Hallie's always like, Chloe, sis, we got this. We chill. Right? That's Hallie. I'm over there freaking out. Yeah, Aries. Yeah, you know. And, <laughs> and so they turned to us and they said, don't go out there trying to sing and prove yourself to anyone. Sing for God, sing to God, and everything else will fall into place. That's Chloe Bailey speaking to Lauren Michelle Jackson at the New Yorker Festival. Her debut album, In Pieces, comes out this month. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long, and I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done, and that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright, a star of The Color Purple, honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Not long ago, I was hanging around the office and I came across the New Yorker's director of photography, Joanna Milter. And on a big desk, she was laying out a series of black and white images, one after another. One of our story editors had forwarded an email to me from a man, Peter Cunningham, who claimed to have access to a cache of images that Henri Cartier-Bresson photographed in New Jersey in the 1970s. I thought, could, is this real? Like, are, it, it, could this be authentic, you know? I mean, Cartier-Bresson is one of the most famous documentary photographers of all time. His catalog is very well known, very famous. And how could there be this cache of unseen, unpublished images. The scenes were very recognizable to me from my youth. Commuters stuck in a traffic jam near the George Washington Bridge, beauty salons, an office, huge sprawling power plants. These were terrific pictures by a French photographer who was really one of the masters of the form. And Henri Cartier-Bresson had chosen to shoot them all in my home state, 
in New Jersey. It's a kind of uh, shortcut through America in a way. Something where you find extremes. When we mention to anybody that we're doing an essay, that means concentrating on various aspects of New Jersey, they're always surprised. Why? But uh, what's the interest? And uh, it seems that they just go through on the turnpike and it's all the industrial areas that uh, they'd like to forget. So the story of how Peter Cunningham came to have these prints in his possession is really interesting. In the 1970s, Peter told me, his girlfriend at the time was working as a producer at a public television station in New York. Yeah, that's right. Working on a PBS show called Assignment America as an associate producer. She came home saying that she wanted to do a show on a photographer. And who should she do? Well, I said, I said, well, you should get Henri Cartier-Bresson, but he'll never do it. And so she invited Cartier-Bresson to the United States with the proposal that they make a documentary about him and that he create a body of work and that they make a documentary around that body of work. When Jean came home and told me that Cartier-Bresson had said yes, I probably fell on the floor or jumped and touched the ceiling. It was unbelievable because Henri, Henri was and still is my hero. And then Peter, who was a young photographer, burgeoning photographer at the time, ended up with the assignment to be his assistant. We drove out of the city every day and, and yacked away in the car all the way and drove all the way back and yacked all the way back. It was only when we were in the process of shooting that Henri didn't want to talk. And he, he my job was to, to make all the interactions, to speak with people, uh, and allow him to be completely, to be, to be himself in the frame. He loved living in the frame of his Leica. So who would, who would decide where to go and what was, what was the conception behind it all? John Evans in the studio at PBS at Channel 13 did the production. So she booked us every day somewhere with the Newark Fire Department or, or with a nuclear power plant or with the, with the State House in Trenton or this and that. So she planned our targets. Now, as, as I re- remember, Cartier Bresson used to talk about the decisive moment, mm. capturing the decisive moment. Mm. That was what it was all about for him. How did you see that in action? The decisive moment. What, what, one thing he told me, I never connected until you mentioned it, David, is that he would say to don't see what's happening now. See what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. Look, you know, focus your eyes a second or two in advance of the present tense. Which is, which is unusual kind of advice. We are all told to live in the present. Well, he's actually living a second or two before the present. He's anticipating. I think, yeah, I think that's right, David. And did you see him? In, was there any moment, any photograph that you can recall? You said, ah, now I, I, I see what he's up to. Here, I'll show. Here's on, they're mounted on, on board for the, um, for the TV production. But um, it's this picture of Governor Brendan Byrne boxing with Jersey Joe Walcott. And Jersey Joe has a checkered suit on, and the, I guess, PR kind of guy in the background has the same checkered suit, by coincidence, I'm sure. And uh, this, was, this was a press event. Uh, there were other photographers there. 
Um, but he got the, he got, he maybe shot, I have to look at the contact sheets, but he got maybe shot, I don't know, 10 frames. He didn't overshoot like we do now with our digital cameras. Right. Where, where there's no limit. It used to cost us 35 cents each time we pressed the shutter. But now there's <laughs> now no price free. on it. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it changes, it changes the way we do things. What he did shoot, some of the pictures were more interesting than others, but every single one of them was beautifully composed, down to the little black corner, in the black shape in the corner. It, it, it's so true. He says, at one point, Cartier-Bresson says, in photography, the smallest thing can be a great subject. The little human detail can become a leitmotif. So, uh, Henri said that he wanted to show... Americans or New Jersey people, their own culture. He said that it's very difficult to see a culture from in, if you're a part of it. It's like being, you know, a fish in water that doesn't see the water. So this picture, which is pretty ordinary, really strikes me as an example of that because mm. at the time, I don't remember, but I probably thought nothing of a guy standing over what we called a girl at the time and supervising her. It was a boss and a secretary. Mm. We don't have bosses and secretaries anymore. <laughs> so what we're seeing here is a woman at an office, seated, and she's going through some papers, and hovering above her is what, because of the time, we presume to be her supervisor or her boss, who's a male. She looks a little scared, doesn't she? As if she can't maybe find the thing the boss is looking for. It, it, it does look almost the office looks incredibly deliberately lifeless i mean it's just cold and endlessly white and you would not want to spend that much time in that room much less 40 hours a week one thing i learned from Henri's work as a youngster was that this was the power of the still photograph that even more than a narrative form the still photograph could reflect reality in ways that worked like a metaphor in the receiver's mind so that they kind of exploded with meaning. Can you give us an example of any of the photographs where you think that's the case? Yeah, okay, here we are. So this is the picture that you, David, thank you, featured as the lead picture in, in your piece. It's a picture from a beauty school in central Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's a, there's a, um, a person is, uh, making up another person but he put himself in the in a, in a mirror, in the corner of a mirror. Right, you can see in the lower right-hand corner of the photograph. You, you have a photograph in yep. which one woman is making up another, but it's also about photography. It's about looking. And so, in the left lower left-hand quadrant of this photograph, you see Henri Cartier-Bresson taking the photograph. This is clearly. This is, a, as we now say these days, endlessly, a meta picture, a picture about taking pictures, um, capturing an image, and, and, and all the rest. It's really quite remarkable. Yeah. Before I worked with Henri, I used to work in that style, black and white style on the street. And afterwards, I realized if I spent my whole life doing this, I could once in a while get a picture of his standard, but I couldn't ever achieve his level of consistent excellence. So I switched to color film and to uh, a different thing, to, to doing uh, juxtapositions of images. I consciously changed because he was so good. He, he seems so ambivalent about his 
own art. He said, in fact, he would never use a flash, as far as I understand. And he, he said <laughs> that using a flash was impolite, like coming to a concert with a pistol in your hand. Well, I completely agree. I, I've been a, a performance photographer my whole life, and, and it is. It's a horrible thing to use a flash. It makes, it makes the photographer be the center of the action. And in a concert hall, <laughs> the person on stage is the center of the action. Now, tell me what resulted from all these photographs. What was put on television at the time in the mid-70s? <laughs> Gosh, David, that's a sad story. So there was a problem with the production in that the director insisted to, on doing it his way, despite knowing that Henri's preferences, he cropped the pictures for TV in, in TV format, which is whatever it is, four by five. So the show aired with the pictures cropped, which is a sin. It was, it was a horrible scene. And so Cartier-Bresson must have been furious. I was never aware of, of his personal reaction. He was always friendly with us afterwards. He kept writing, and, writing postcards and inviting us to visit. But his agent went crazy. and um, <laughs> That's what agents are for. <laughs> well, he did a good job. Yeah. So all history of the New Jersey event disappeared. So in the timeline of Henri's career, the, n photographing in New Jersey doesn't exist. It's not there. It was written out of history. And then you hung on to these prints and then finally brought them to The New Yorker. Well, yeah, I, I protected them for all those times, and I was a busy photographer myself, so I didn't pay much attention. They were on my shelves gathering dust for literally 48 years. Um, and I'm very grateful that The New Yorker picked them up because as Henri's assistant, being an assistant is sometimes like a love affair. You can, you can, the love affair can end, but you still have... A, a kind of essence of love for somebody a whole life. And, and that's what I feel with Henri. I'm still his servant, and I would like to do what I imagine he would like. And in this case, I'd like to have the people of New Jersey be able to see the pictures he made of their state nearly 50 years ago. Peter Cunningham is a photographer himself based in Massachusetts, and you can see Henri Cartier-Bresson's photographs of New Jersey at newyorker.com. I'm David Remnick. That's our program for today. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbess of Tune Yards with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Frida Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Ngofen Mputabuele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline and Meher Bhatia. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.